Welcome to Overthinking in Your Underwear. I'm Lindsay, and this week we are overthinking the seven things I learned about happiness from being unhappy. First of all, I just want to start off by saying I spent the last eight days in Maine with my parents, and just to talk about gratitude, gratitude is like one of the quick fixes to happiness. I was so grateful to have this time with my parents. It was really wonderful, and I'm so grateful to still have them. I'm so grateful to have such a great relationship with them. So just a gratitude there, and it was a beautiful trip. I'm like obsessed with Maine. I'm all about Maine now. I'm like wearing overalls and like not doing my hair. I have like naturally curly hair, so I'm like letting my hair go crazy, not wearing makeup. I'm like fully adopted the persona of Maine and catch me moving there, you guys. Catch me moving there. I loved it. It was like so my spirit geography. Is that a thing? Like if spirit animal is a thing, can you have like a spirit geography? Like I touched down there and I was just like the air is different. Like the whole feel of Maine was so me. Like if you're not traveling with your 70-year-old parents, you're doing it wrong because for me, you know, at 45, it was like we had dinner at five, like we walked around a little more Then it was time for reading and bed by 830. You know, I mean, that's that's me. That's my jam. I had a great time. They are completely on my schedule, right? So also catch me traveling with my parents from now on. It was great. Um, Sorry to my girls trip that I usually like go on a girls trip, but I'm sorry, like the boomers are way more my speed. So back to this happiness subject, right? I have to be honest about how I got here. Like you don't spend this much time thinking about happiness and noodling happiness and wondering how to get happy if you're just born happy. If you're like one of those people that comes out of the womb and you're like, I'm happy, everything's happy. Why are we overthinking it? What's the big deal? What are you guys all crying about, right? And I wasn't one of those people. I was one of those people that I think was a little melancholy when I was younger. I was always kind of overthinking everything, hence the title of my book and my podcast, Overthinking in Your Underwear. But I kind of walked around with like a fog around me for a long time. And I didn't even want to admit it. Like if anybody ever asked me, like, are you depressed or are you sad? I'd say no. And I even say this in my book, like I smiled so much that sometimes I even got like the nickname of like smiley or people would comment on like how much I smiled or how positive I was, which was all a facade. So check on your friends that smile a lot. Okay. And really, I was, you know, not clinically depressed or anything like that, but I just kind of carried around a cloud around me, okay? Um, But I had an eating disorder growing up, and, you know, I just carried kind of like this heavy cloud around me when I was younger of there was something wrong with me, there was something I needed to fix, or so I was always trying to kind of hack my happiness, I got older and out of high school, and it really didn't go away, if I'm going to be honest. I started doing things like drinking more, and I didn't really drink in high school. That was a huge mistake, I'm going to be honest. I think with my brain chemistry, and some people can drink and be perfectly happy, right? With my brain chemistry, that did the opposite. It made me depressed. It made me anxious. It made me overthink everything. If you're an overthinker with anxiety, stop drinking. Please do yourself a st- please do yourself a solid and stop drinking. 
I would overthink everything like, oh my God, what did I do last night? Was I horrible? Was I like so embarrassing? Did I say something awful? I probably did. So the drinking was not helping. It wasn't helping my brain chemistry. It wasn't helping me fully love myself. So I'm not going to take you through this whole path of of me, uh, of my life, but it's a lot of it. A lot of it is in the book, Overthinking in Your Underwear, now available on Amazon. But what I wanted to say is that no one spends this time looking for the secrets to happiness if they are happy. So I listened to the podcast. I read the books. I took online courses. I did everything to kind of try to figure it out. And that's what I'm sharing with you right now. I'm not a fancy PhD. Um, I'm not a cute professor that went to Harvard. Um, I'm not Huberman in his lab, though I love the Huberman Lab podcast. Go listen to him. He has such great stuff. Some of this stuff may be from him. I probably won't even cite it because sometimes I don't even know where I grab all this stuff. I'm just a girl, probably a lot like you, who's tried, failed, tried again, taken a lot of swings, seen her share of misses, has a pile of self-help books under her bed. And I want to share what I've learned from trying so hard to kind of hack my own happiness and really feeling like I've come out on the other side in like the last 10 years. First of all, step one to the seven things I've learned about happiness from being unhappy is build a foundation where happiness can thrive. So I feel like we spend so much time sabotaging ourselves when there are really some basic things we can do where we have to just build that foundation to even give ourselves half a chance. So that's what number number one is. In my 30s, I was not taking, I was still kind of going through that phase that I was talking about. Not really happy, not really thriving, not really out of that cloud of sadness yet. And I was not really taking care of myself, poor eating habits, erratic sleep patterns, and wondering why my brain circuit served up sadness every morning along with my high fructose pop tart. I came across an article, or maybe it was a podcast, about foods that fight depression, walnuts, leafy greens, fatty fish, yogurt. I started eating this way and getting eight to nine hours of sleep, regular exercise, and before I changed the rest of my life, these small behavioral habits gave me a boost in the right direction. They gave me a foundation where happiness could find its footing. We spend so much time working against ourselves, you guys, sabotaging our happiness with bad habits when we could move the needle on those good vibes and just a few with just a few small behavioral changes. So back to the right food. At the time, I was just eating things like, you know, uh, peanut butter crackers for lunch, a bar for breakfast, grabbing a slice for for dinner. None of those things gave my brain the food that it needed to be happy. It was all just it was all just really processed junk. If you think about it, I wasn't overweight by any means. I was actually quite skinny, but none of it had actually the nutrients that my brain needed to create happiness. And so I started thinking about food in that way and. Everything I ate, I would say, is this happiness food. Like one of my one of my girlfriends at work would always say, Oh, there's Lindsay and her superfood salad, Christine. And 
I would have this salad that had all those things on it that I just listed. It would have walnuts. It would have cranberries. It would have edamame. It would have an egg. It had all those foods that I literally just looked at it and said, pile on everything there that has all of the good brain food. And I actually ended up really liking it. I still like all, I still like my superfood salad to this day. Um, I have put olive oil on the, on the salad instead of dressing that has all of that other stuff in it, you know, all the processed stuff in it. And I just, just like literally looked at that salad in no way about losing weight because I didn't even need to lose an ounce. I probably needed to gain weight at that point in my life. I'm not at that point now. This was back then. But I just looked at it as a way to feel better. And then I would say, oh, I'm hungry again. I'm going to grab an apple. Oh, I'm hungry again. I'm going to grab blueberries because those are rich in that brain food. And that's how I looked at everything I put in my body. I'll grab some yogurt. Everything I looked at my body, I, I looked at ha- as in happiness food, and it really did, it moved the needle. I'm not saying I was spinning around the top of the ma- mountain like Julie Andrews in The Sound of Music, but I could actually feel a tick up in the right direction. So I really took that and kept doing it. I do it to this day. The right food, the right amount of sleep. I started getting eight to nine hours of sleep every night. And I have read this recently. I didn't know this at the time. The right amount of sleep at the right time. So your brain actually knows when you're sleeping. And I did not realize this. Go and Google it because I'm not going to be able to like cite all the studies. But it's really important for you to sleep from like 10 o'clock at night till, you know, six or seven in the morning. If you're sleeping from three in the morning till 10 and till 10 in the morning, it's not the same sleep. Don't ask me because I don't really understand it. But your brain knows when it needs to be in REM sleep. And you guys have probably all heard that term, rapid eye movement. And your REM sleep will be off if you're sleeping at a different time. So if you're sleeping from, you know, late at night in the middle of the morning till late in the morning, mid-afternoon, it's not the same time and your brain's not regenerating in the same way and giving yourself that chance to be happy. So Google some stuff about sleep patterns and when you sleep and try to get yourself on a good schedule. The last part of step one, exercise. Everybody knows exercise is good for you. What it did for me is it changed my relationship with exercise. As someone with an eating disorder, I had kind of a compulsive, obsessive attitude toward exercise. I have to exercise. I have to exercise. I have to exercise. And now it changed it to, I get to exercise. I need to exercise. I need this for my mood and my brain. And that's how I still see it. Like, I go to yoga. That's what I do. That's my kind of chosen activity. And when I go to it, I'm like, oh my gosh, I love this. And I'm not like pushing myself so hard to, you know, burn those calories and and lose weight. It has nothing to do with that. I literally think of it as, well, you know, you need to do this. That's really good for your brain. For me, I actually like kind of come up with ideas when I'm in yoga. I feel more creative. I feel more rejuvenated for this next part of my day to do more work or finish the project. So I'm always like, it's a brain activity for me. Like yoga is a brain activity for me rather than like a losing weight body activity. So it really, for me, changed my relationship with exercise. So you need that exercise to give you those feel good endorphins and chemicals. It may help you kind of like reframe your relationship with exercise. I'm going to get the happiness chemicals going and I'm going to feel so good afterwards. Like I know the after effects of this walk, of this hike, and I am going to do it. So 
Number one, build a foundation where happiness can find its footing. So number two, stop the blame game. It's easy when we're unhappy to get our pointer finger working overtime, to blame everything on the outside of you instead of doing the work on the inside. It must be the job. It must be my ex-boyfriend. Is Mercury in retrograde again? The reality is the only person raising their hand and choosing unhappiness is you or me in this case, as we're talking about me so much. It's me. Hi, I'm the problem. It's me. Taylor knows, right? You guys, Taylor knows. So happiness is an inside job. It doesn't depend on other people and it can't be blamed on your bad boss. You have to start with a man in the mirror if you want to get serious about getting happy and you have to stop the blame on everything and everyone around you. So this is step two, taking accountability for your life in a bold way and not unloading it onto every outside force around you, your awful partner, your bad boss, the government, and obviously these things exist. I know that and they suck. If you're in a bad relationship, relationship, if you have a terrible boss, if you're in a fight with the government, take control of the situation and demand more for yourself. If every time something goes wrong, you think, but I'm from a broken home, or I grew up with an eating disorder, you're removing authority over your emotions and your ability to actually help yourself work out of it. You're saying, all of the power is outside of me and I can't do anything about it. I have no power over my own happiness. I can't choose to be happy right now because this happened to me in the past, because this is happening right now, because I have a bad boss or a bad work situation or because I grew up in a bad home. This is your life. These are your emotions. You have the power over it. So stop the blame game. Know that this is your life and you're in control of it. So step three, spend the day in your head. So when I started doing this work, somewhere along the way, the concept of spending the day in your head, listening to your inner monologue came up. And when I did, I was knocked over by the way I was talking to myself. I mean, every turn I was saying something terrible, like, I'm not good enough, or you're so stupid, or you're so dumb, or you're not that smart. Like the words that I was saying to myself, I was abusive, you guys, I was abusing myself, I couldn't believe it. And it took time, but I retrained my inner monologue towards positivity. And that's what you need to do. The words that run through your head create your emotions. Your emotions create your experience. Your experience is your reality. You're in control of your reality by the words you say to yourself. It's actually kind of powerful to think about, to think that you have control of your day and your mood just by modifying your inner monologue. You may hear your inner monologue referred to as the inner voice or the tapes in your head. Whatever you call the chitty chitty bang bang in your brain is fine, but understanding its effect on your life is crucial. You can't be happy. You can't be positive if you're walking around abusing yourself with the words you say every day. Your inner monologue streams a 24-hour news cycle straight to your brain. Think about that. Think about the punishing way and the punishing words that come through your brain. We believe the words we tell ourselves, and every utterance informs our self-worth. Creating a positive inner monologue is crucial to your happiness. Choose your words with care and harness a hype squad that's cheering so loud your teeth are chattering. Something else about your inner monologue is it doesn't just go for you're so dumb or I'm the emperor of all idiots. Like whatever you're sitting there saying to yourself, of course, zip it, stop it. No, nada. We're not talking to ourselves like that. But even just negative chatter, 
like after I kind of did, we'll say phase one, phase one of stopping like that abusive language that I was talking to myself, I would kind of hear myself saying, I don't know, let's say I'm sitting, I'm working on a project and I'm going, gosh, why does that guy always do that? He's, he's so dumb, like other people, right? That negative chatter of he's so dumb. Why does he do that? Blah, blah, blah. It's still negativity. And I know it can be kind of like, oh my gosh, how positive do we have to be, right? We can't ever have a negative thought. Obviously, they're going to breeze through your head. Maybe you say that you have the thought about the guy not being great on the project, whatever it is. I say this a lot in the book, pick it up and put it down. Like you can have it, but don't obsess over it. Don't flood yourself with negative thinking, whether it's about yourself, whether it's about your annoying neighbor, whether it's something on the news that you just keep flooding yourself with negativity. You don't have to be delusional. You don't have to be like only skipping around thinking about, you know, shea poo puppies and chocolate and unicorns because that's what I would think about. I would just like scroll through my phone looking at pictures of puppies if I could. I read something the other day. This is a little bit of an aside. It said, your emotions create the situation. Your situation is not creating the emotions. It's a bit of a riddle, but if you think about it, it's pretty powerful You are in control of your mind, your day, and your experience. It's not voodoo. It's not anything weird. It's really just saying you are in control of your reaction. So if you go into a situation and you're saying this is going to be terrible, this is going to be awful, I'm going to react to this person in a terrible way because we're having kind of like a little bit of a tension. We're having a little bit of a conflict. You know what's going to happen? You're going to go in and it's going to play out exactly how you are obsessing about, exactly how you see in your mind, exactly all the emotions that you're bringing to the situation. If you go in and you're like, this is going to be great. We're going to be calm. It's going to be awesome. You are calm. You are bringing positivity to the situation. If you go there and the other person still has a horrible reaction, you know what? Your calmness, your positivity is going to make the situation a lot better, even if that other person still brings negativity, even if there is a reaction to that situation. Trust me, you bringing your mindset is going to change that situation. But if you walk in armed with the outcome you think will happen, it will play out exactly how you built up in your mind. So yeah, you can't change what happens in your day, but you can always control your reaction. Create the life you want in your head and watch things turn out for the better. Step four on our seven steps to happiness is retrain your brain with positivity. So now we've like looked at all of that negativity and we've like really seen, wow, we need a do-over. We are really doing things wrong. This is where we're going to get into a little bit of like the law of attraction and things like that. So if your mother ever said that attitude isn't going to get you anywhere, she was oh so loosely giving you a lesson in the law of attraction. Like attracts like, energy flows where attention goes, and the universe sees our energy and it matches it. It's that simple. Whatever you're focusing on, you will attract more of into your life. If you're locked into negativity, don't expect greatness. If you're brimming with positive energy and action, good things will will follow. Like we said, your thoughts create your emotions, your emotions create your reality, your reality is your life. It's kind of scary, but it's also really powerful how much you control your day. So a quick fix out of negativity is gratitude. And I know that is a broad statement because there are some horrifying situations out there and I don't want to be glib about it, but, but gratitude can generally get you out of a low mood. <laughs> 
let's say you are just having kind of a bad day and you sit there and you say, I am grateful for my health. I am grateful for my dog. I am grateful for my best friend. I am grateful that I have a house that I love. Like just start listing your gratitudes and it will raise your energy. It will make you start to feel better on the other side. Step five is look at your labels. So I talk about this in chapter two of the book. Labels is sort of a crash course, if you will, in shadow work. Shadow work is really popular right now. Shadow work is originated by Carl Jung, who is a psychologist, psychotherapist, uh, Swiss Mr. Psychologist, I like to say. Um, so shadow work is really popular right now. And what it is, is about incorporating the light in the dark, right? The shadow. The light is all the positivity in your life. Like if I were to look at the light side, I'd say, look, I am creative. Um, I am energetic. I am fun. I am focused. I am detail oriented. I am disciplined. The dark, we all have that dark side of us, right? The part, the part that we wouldn't so readily list on a podcast, right? I don't want to sit here and list all of my negative labels. So that's what um, the shadow work encourages you to do. And that's what I talk about in chapter two of my book is making a list of all of those negative labels, like everything negative people have made you feel in your life and that maybe you feel and that you do feel about yourself. Like I feel small, I feel insecure, I feel unworthy, I feel unattractive. I feel what are all these things that you have collected over the years and we have all collected a file folder of negative labels, right? Like we all have a huge list of these negative labels. The first part of the work is kind of looking at these and kind of trying to pinpoint where do they come from? You know, if you said, I feel unattractive, look at it at that and say, well, where did this label come from? Did you, were you bullied in school for not being attractive enough? Like where did this feeling of unattractive come from? Kind of be like knowing the origin of a label or an insecurity is always, is always an awareness and a good way to work out of it writing the other side of it, flipping it around, reframing it. I am attractive, right? Also knowing that we all have these negative labels and saying it is okay. It is okay to say I feel insecure. It is okay to say I feel small. It is okay to say I am an introvert. I talk about that in the book too, that introversion was kind of a label for me for a long time that I wasn't really willing to accept. I wanted to think I was an extrovert. I thought that introversion kind of meant weird and odd and it wasn't good. And so accepting, are these are there labels that you can accept and say, hey, you know what? Introversion made me the writer, the overthinker, and the person I am today who's very comfortable being alone, who loves being alone, who it's fueled my creativity. I love that label now and I find power in it. Obviously, you're not going to be able to reframe every label with that much power, but there's some work in that. So make a list of your labels, see if you can re redefine some of them and see if you can own any of them in a more powerful way. So step six is self-worth at the center. So my book is really all about kind of building up and finding your self-worth. That really, I think, is the focus of happiness. If you are happy with yourself, you can be happy with someone else. If you are happy with yourself, you will be happy in your job. You will be happier with your family. You'll be happier with your life. You'll be happier with your dog. Self-worth is at the center of everything we do. I was middle-aged before I learned self-worth will save you. I could fake it like Meg Ryan and that diner scene with Billy Crystal. 
actual real self-love never met her, Mariah Carey voice. I didn't know a thing about self-worth. I knew about faking confidence and drafting your self-worth off relationships and situations like a cyclist at the Tour de France. Did I say France? Okay. But getting all that gooey goodness right from the center of yourself, how does that even work? Here's a little bit of how it works. Stop all that negative talk. Build up a hype squad in your head. If you're into meditation, meditate with light and positive affirmations. Get your gratitude on. Omit things from your orbit that don't deserve your energy, like people or situations. And then there's this, your self-worth tank. That's right, an actual tank of self-worth at the center of your belly. Decorate it with glitter or write your name on the side. Interpret your self-worth tank any way you like, but it's filled with hot, bubbly self-worth generated by you. See it? meditate on it and hoard your self-worth as if it were toilet paper in 2020. Okay, so here's the takeaway of this rather ridiculous exercise. You control your self-worth tank on a daily and even hourly basis, filling it and using it to guide situations, relationships, and decisions in your life. Okay, for instance, you're in a dating situation or a relationship situationship. Get honest with yourself before the appetizer arrives. Do you have to continually compromise yourself to be with this person or make excuses for their behavior? After every date, is your self-worth tank full or is this person draining you with slights and disrespect? Ask yourself this simple question. Does this person fill my self-worth tank or do they drain it? You're fighting for your self-worth. If someone is punching back and pulling from your progress, don't allow them in your life. The same evaluation can be done with friends, family, careers, or behaviors that you're doing. Does this person, job, or glass of tequila fill my self-worth tank or is it draining it? When you audit your life through the epicenter of self-worth, you demand more from yourself, others, and the universe. Step seven, find a passionate one thing. So I talk about finding your one thing in the last section of the book, but Jesse Etzler, who is married to Sarah Blakely, who founded Spanx, I love Sarah, um, I I say that like I know her, I don't know her, I'm in a parasocial relationship with her, do you guys know what that is? It means I follow her on Instagram so much that I feel like I know her and that we're friends. I'm surprised that she doesn't like invite me on her girls trip every year, which she has, still waiting for the invite. Um, Anyway, Jesse Etzler is Sarah's husband, and he is an entrepreneur in his own right. Very cool guy. He seems like he is. Again, I'm just observing them like a weirdo. He says this thing about finding a passionate one thing that has kind of made me add to and evolve what I say about it. So I wanted to give, give them kind of credit for it. So here's what it is. So at the beginning of every year, choose one thing to define your year. So you spend your year living by your passion. It can be running a marathon, redecorating your house, redoing your bathroom, starting a podcast, writing a book, whatever it is that is in your line of passion. For me, it would obviously be something like writing a book or starting a podcast. For you, it may be starting a landscaping business. 
everyone's passion is different. Everyone's thing that everyone's one thing that defines them and drives them and gives them a reason to wake up every morning is different. You may be saying to yourself, Look, lady, I have three soccer games and four dance classes on the calendar each week, along with my full-time job. I do not need a reason to get out of bed. Those are tasks on the calendar. Choose something that is yours alone. Starting a garden, learning to paint, committing to walking every morning before your family wakes up. Whatever you choose, it should excite you to think about, not like a task on the calendar. A little aside, but happiness looks different for everybody. Passions look different for everyone. My happiness looks very different than my best friend's. If I was using a measuring stick for my life up against hers, I'd end up feeling bad about myself. We want different things. Different things move us. Don't spend your time comparing your happiness or your passions to someone else's. Everyone's motivations are intrinsic and personal to that person. So something else Jesse says that I think is really interesting is if you live your life this way, if each year you choose running a marathon, writing a book, whatever, imagine yourself 20 years later, how many things you will have experienced, you will have a much fuller and more passionate life. So I thought that was really great advice. So that was step seven. Those are the seven things I learned about happiness from being unhappy. So I wanted to leave you with a few of my favorite quotes that are about happiness or they're, they're sort of, about, I've, I've interpreted them to be about happiness. Um, Aristotle said, we are what we repeatedly do. We are what we repeatedly do. So build a life with happiness habits. Like look at your, if you're trying to be happy, if you're trying to be happy, look at your life and say, do I have a life that supports happiness? Am I doing things repeatedly? Do I have happiness habits? Do I meditate? Do I exercise? Do I eat well? Do I sleep right? Do I have a positive mantra running through my head? Do you have a life that supports happiness? Because we are what we repeatedly do. Another quote that I love is from Abraham Lincoln, and it says, folks are about as happy as they make their minds up to be. I believe happiness can be a choice. I believe choose your life, choose to be happy. I believe there was a point in my life where I had to choose a new mindset, where I had to choose happiness habits, like I said before, and where I had to choose to be happy. Obviously, there's going to be a whole disclaimer right here. And I and I vehemently believe it. I'm not just saying this because I don't want anyone to get mad. I vehemently believe there are a host of mental illnesses that people can be burdened with that deserve attention from medical professionals. Medicine can help. I am not just saying that people with bipolar disorder and other things can just choose their way out of it or positive think their way out of it. I don't mean any of that. This is all the caveat of um there, there, there's a huge caveat and a huge asterisk to all of this. So if you are struggling with anything, if you feel that anything is heavier than what I am just speaking about and you need help from a professional, I believe in all of that. So I don't want this to sound like I'm giving some sort of like just positive think your way out of depression because that is definitely not my message. My message is I think all of this stuff can help and I hope that you use it and I hope that it is helpful to you. I also you hope you use anything at your disposal, therapists, psychiatrists, families, group therapies, and medicine, even medicine. 
So thank you so much for overthinking with me this week. Until next time, wishing you all good thoughts. 